If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're bringing you more on Britain's most famous prehistoric monument, Stonehenge. This episode is the second part of a two-part special on Stonehenge, So if you haven't heard part one, I'd recommend pausing this podcast now and going back to last Sunday and checking out the first part. But if you are up to date and keen for more, then in this episode, our content director, David Musgrove, put more of your top questions and internet searches about Stonehenge to the archaeologist and author, Mike Pitts. Carl O'Doherty would, would love to get an overview of the construction he asked, and he talks about sort of specifically the maths and measurements needed, um, which is an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Maths and measurements. What does that what does that tell us about? I mean, presumably, you know, they weren't using maths in the same way that we are today, or were they? Well, I mean, not in the same way, but they must have been using maths. I mean, they must have had a counting system. I mean, one of the obvious things at Stonehenge, I mean, is is the original stone circle has 56 stones in it. 56 doesn't sound very special to us today. But the final Stonehenge has a lot of tens and fives in it. You've got 30 uh, stones in the circle, 30 lintels. You've got five five trilithons in the middle and so on, um, which which gives you 10 uprights. And you can see those fives and tens reflected in timber structures as well at the time. So clearly they could count. And to be honest, you're not going to be able to build something like Stonehenge with all the complex engineering if you can't count. Um, And presumably they had also a system of measurement. Again, you need to measure stuff somehow to get all these things to fit together. There have been a lot of attempts to, to, to prove the existence of a unit of measurement, 
and uh, to try and determine exactly what that was. I have, frankly, I don't find any of them convincing. And I think the problem for us today is that if they had any literal rulers, they would have been in material that hasn't survived. And looking for those units in the really um, partial, fragmented remains that we do have to look at, I just think is, is, is a lost cause. But they must have been able to counter, they must have been able to measure, and also they must have been able to level. Stonehenge site slopes, it's not great, but it does slope enough to make it necessary to vary the height of standing stones if you are going to achieve a perfectly level ring of lintels, and that level was achieved. In terms of numbers, when I was writing how to build Stonehenge, an obvious thing I had to do was think very carefully about how long this took, how many people were involved, how many miles and how many tons and so on. And these are figures that have been puzzled over for generations. The bottom line, of course, is that we're largely guessing. We're helped with the weights by a recent laser survey of the megaliths, which allowed for the first time for a decent mathematical estimate to be made of stone weights. It's not complete because that only measures the stones above ground, and there's a, obviously quite a lot of stone below ground. And unfortunately, every megalith that's been excavated seems to have a different amount of stone below ground, so you can't really assume much about what we don't know underground. But I reckon my estimate is that the whole monument, the big sarsens, is the equivalent, or would have been when complete, the equivalent in weight of 12 adult blue whales. That's a huge weight. Now, it's interesting, by comparison, the blue stones are less than one and a half whales. So that puts in perspective the difference in scale between the Sarsen monument and the blue stones. We hear a lot about the blue stones and the journey from Wales, and undoubtedly that's a challenge. But the sheer scale, the weight of the sarsens, it brings a very different challenge when it comes to moving them. And I think to move sarsens, unlike bluestones, we need not just engineered sledges, but we need a, a permanent trackway. We've got 75 sarsens to bring to the site. Some of those are really big. You know, they're weighing 30 or 40 tonnes. And moving those even five miles, let's just leave aside where they came from a moment, is going to make a mark on the landscape in terms of just destroying the turf and making a mess. And you've got so many of these to move. I think the realistic solution has to involve a permanent track. Now, we know from archaeology that at this time people were building wooden tracks for pedestrian use. Um, and they're all, you know, wherever we've got waterlogged remains in the UK, we find these trackways. And some of them are quite well engineered. So it doesn't take a great stretch of imagination from there um, and think about the houses that people were building to believe that people could have quite easily built engineered trackways that would have carried sledges. And so when you've done that, moving those huge stones, once you've built those sledges and you've built those tracks or that track, then moving those stones becomes a relatively simple task. I say relatively, but um, I think you could have got the stones... OK, we'll say the sarsens come from 
17 miles or so to the north, you could have brought those to Stonehenge in less than a year um, with a 1,000 people working a number of different teams. And even if you say we've got a lot of partying, we've got a lot of accidents, people are going off to do whatever they do at home they need to do, they take part in feasts, rituals and so on, that you could easily, I think, do that in two years. Um, and previous estimates have involved 10, 20 years. You know, I think we start to get to the point where it stretches beyond credibility that you could actually sustain such a project if it takes so long. I very much like your new standard unit of measurement in Wales. I mean, normally we measure things in football pitches, don't we? But uh, but but blue Wales. Yeah, well, they didn't have football pitches in the Neolithic, but they did have blue Wales. <laughs> I think the you know the scale of these sarsens is something I, I I will keep hammering on about. It makes a massive difference to the organisation required, the labour, the technology, and so on. And the sarsen structure is by far the bigger achievement. Um, not least because because of the engineering, um, it clearly needed to be done over a relatively short period. Okay, yeah, okay, that's I, I, I get the message. So even though the blue stones are coming from further away, actually the the sarsen movement is uh, is, is a big enough. Now we, we need to charge on because we've still got a bit of ground to cover. Um, so you've just mentioned there that the sarsens probably came from uh, the, the local area, not too far away. We've got a couple of questions here which which ask about the local area and the landscape. We've got one from Tracy F on Twitter who asked about Woodhenge. You mentioned Woodhenge earlier, I think. Um, another site nearby, uh, Shane Bat on Facebook asked what the relationship uh, was there, if any, between the Amesbury Archer and Stonehenge. And you've mentioned there are various other um, sites, prehistoric sites within this within this landscape. So perhaps just give us a, a little taste of, of how Stonehenge fits into the into the into the broader picture there. Until archaeologists got onto the scene, everybody thought Stonehenge just stood on its own in this sort of empty landscape. In the past decade or so, we've realised that's extremely misleading. Um, it's a really active landscape. The first monument really to come to light was in the 1920s, and remarkably was an uh, arrangement of rings of post holes of massive pits in the ground that had held oak posts that very similar in plan, both in scale and in arrangement to the stones at Stonehenge. The only difference being that at Stonehenge, you've got these kind of horseshoe, these open U's um, at this monument, this timber monument, which the archaeologists dubbed Woodhenge, you've got complete ovals, complete rings. And unfortunately, we don't know exactly when Woodhenge was built. We know it's around about the same time. The artefacts that come out of the post holes are broadly contemporary with those we find in Stonehenge and, and other monuments of this period. But when we're talking, as we are now able to do, about almost periods by the decade, then we cannot say at the moment whether Woodhenge was built before during or after the construction of the Sarsen Stonehenge, but it's around about the same time. And unfortunately, this goes with so many other things. So in terms of actually managing, you know, picturing a kind of landscape where different monuments are, are bouncing off each other, um, it, it's difficult to, to know what was going on. So, for example, I mean, one suggestion I make in my book is that if you think about the construction of this Sarsen monument involving trackways and sledges, and of course you need a lot of timber 
to manoeuvre the stones into position on site, then when you're done, you've got a huge amount of oak. And this oak is, 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 is endowed with, I think, with rather special values because of its association with this construction project. And what do you do with it? Well, one of the things you could do with it is build something like Woodhenge. So, so one possibility is that Woodhenge is actually a byproduct of Stonehenge and is almost exactly contemporary with it just a few years later. Um, and so Woodhenge then becomes a memorialization of that construction project. Um, it's just completely hypothetical, really. Amesbury Archer is a really interesting guy. Now, he, just to remind people, um, was an individual who was born in Central Europe. He died, or at least he was buried. We don't know where he died, I suppose, but he was buried close to Stonehenge in Wiltshire. And at the time he was buried, he took with him um, a massive collection of really precious artefacts. He was greedy. Or the people who buried him wanted to betray him in that way, wanted to betray him as somebody who had power and ownership in the way that almost nobody else at the time had. And amongst that power is smithing. He has in his grave some of the oldest copper and gold in Britain. And he has too much of it. I mean, he's got, you know, he's got enough stuff for several people of every type. He's got enough pots for half a dozen people, usually people at this time, when they're buried with the pots, they get one. This guy's got six or seven. The distinctive pots this man is buried with, and he's got so many, there's enough there for several people, we know as beakers. And he's one of the early migrants into Britain at this time of huge cultural change across the whole of the British Isles. Now, the fact that this unique burial is found so close to Stonehenge cannot be coincidence. What's interesting, amongst many things, is that Stonehenge is west of the River Avon and the Amesbury Archer is east of the River Avon. And that may be significant because everything at the moment we know about Stonehenge in monumental terms, the monument itself, associated earthworks, Woodhenge, Durrington Walls, a massive henge immediately by Woodhenge where at one stage, it looks as if um, over a thousand people were camped at the time Stonehenge was being built, and so on, are all west of the River Avon, and the Amesbury Archer is the other side of the river. If you think the river is a territorial boundary, then he's in a different political landscape. If you think the river flows through the centre of it, then He's in that landscape, but he's making a point, or at least the people who buried him are making a point that he is not at Stonehenge. He died around 2300 BC. That's two centuries after the Sarsen Stonehenge was built. So we had nothing to do with its construction. By that time, it's possible even the first megalith or two have fallen over. So he is there at a time when Stonehenge is already beginning to be reinvented by new communities. New religious ideas are entering the landscape on a large scale. What's interesting about burials at Stonehenge is that before that big Sarsen monument was built, it was a very busy cemetery for cremations. That cremation burial ceased when the Sarsens were erected, but one person was buried afterwards, 
And like the Ainsbury Archer, he has, with in his grave, he had these very distinctive flint arrowheads that are associated with these migrants. The Ainsbury Archer, had, being a greedy chap, had 18 of these beautiful arrowheads in his grave. The guy at Stonehenge had three. Even three is quite a few. But what's interesting is that the man at Stonehenge did not have these arrowheads because he was showing off his ability as an archer or his wealth, but because the arrows killed him. A couple of his bones have the tips, the flint tips off arrowheads in them. One of them actually fits onto one of the three arrowheads in the grave. The other two tips of the arrowheads are both missing. He has, in addition, four wounds caused by arrows in elsewhere on his body. And it's a curious thing because it looks like he wasn't just, he didn't just die by accident. He didn't just get an arrow when he was out hunting deer or something. He's shot at from close range from all directions. So there's a really strange thing going on there. He died around about 2300 BC, which is around about the same time as the Ainsbury Archer. So they're broadly contemporary, but our dating is not precise enough that we can say that either of them were actually alive at the same time. So we can't say, for example, on basis, we can't, I mean, we could hypothesize that the Ainsbury Archer shot him. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's perfectly possible. But there's something funny going on here that we've yet to get to the bottom of. We need a lot more evidence from the area and from the rest of the UK to assess what's happening socially and politically at this time. But there's a story there. That's a, that's a good mystery to, to come back to at some point. Um, let's, let's have a, a think about Stonehenge versus other monuments. Uh, Brendan Mitchell on Facebook and Blake Johnson on Facebook both asking similar sort of questions, wanting to know how unique Stonehenge is as a monument uh, and, and how it compares to other similar types of, of monument in the landscape. I think when people came to Stonehenge when it was an active site and hadn't seen it before. And they would have heard stories about it. And when they got close to it and saw it, they would have, I think, have been as impressed as as we are today. Um, They knew about megaliths. They knew about standing stones and stone circles. Britain in particular has hundreds and hundreds of these things all over the place. What's different about Stonehenge is, to start with, that it shouldn't be there. Stone circles and standing stones are usually in parts of the landscape where the rocks occur naturally. You can take a natural boulder of more or less the right shape to make a megalith off an outcrop, move it a few hundred yards, um, don't have to do anything to it, just dig a hot pit and stand it up and you're done. And that is what most of the stone circles and standing stones in Britain are. At Stonehenge, at the site, there just are not the stones to make the monument. And as we know, a lot of them came from Wales, others came from 20, 30 miles to the north in Wiltshire. Um, so that it, it's not a monument, as it were, in its natural habitat. The second thing about it is the way the stones are dressed. Most megalithic monuments across northern Europe at this time um, are natural boulders. Quite a few of them have been adjusted, if you like. Um, surfaces have been smoothed off. Um, Sometimes carvings, abstract engravings, have been set, laid into the surface of the stone, sometimes quite elaborately. Um, at Stonehenge, we don't, during the construction phase, the original Stonehenge, we don't have anything like that because the stone is so very, very hard. 
But what we do have, and this is unique, is that not only are some of the stones smooth to make one surface even, all the sarsens, all and all the significant blue stones are carved, are smooth on almost every surface. Uh, there's very little undressed stone at Stonehenge, and the big Sarsen monument, the stones are shaped very carefully. So, for example, the lintels in the ring on the Sarsen circle, these 30 lintels forming a perfect circle, the lintels themselves are shaped to reflect that ring. So the inner edges are curved in and the outer edges are curved out. And they are jointed into each other. They have tongue and grooves that fit into each other. And on the undersides, they each have a pair of holes into which tenons from the top of the standing stones underneath fit. There is nothing like that anywhere in Europe. And we can only conceive that the idea came from timber engineering, that it was something that people were doing, had developed and were used to doing with timber structures that superficially looked similar to Stonehenge. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It is absolutely true that this has long been a feature of Stonehenge history and archaeology. Um, and not just Stonehenge, of course, but, you know, the same thing happens with Easter Island, with pyramids and so on. And it fundamentally... It's patronising and insulting, not just to ancient people, but I would argue also to, to modern people. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now then, let's move on to more recent history of the monument a bit. Um, got a good one here from nearly breathless Nick, uh, who, say, who asks, what did the Romans think of Stonehenge? <laughs> 
ah, who knows? If only they were here, we could ask them. It'd be really interesting, wouldn't it? Um, one of the curious facts about Stonehenge is there's actually more Roman pottery than there is Neolithic. So we know Roman people were there, or at least, you know, Britons were there in Roman times, possibly doing no more than having the old picnic going along with a jar, um, possibly doing more than that. I mean, it has been suggested in the past that one of the reasons Stonehenge looks as dilapidated as it is today is that Romans attacked it. They saw it as a pagan monument associated with Druids and that they had a kind of war against Druidry and and knocking down Stonehenge will be a great symbolic act to, to show their power over native religion that they wanted to wipe out. That doesn't really stack up for all sorts of reasons. One is that the archaeological evidence that Romans did anything like that just doesn't exist. Although, to be honest, it's difficult to know exactly what you might find to prove, what you could find to prove it, but the, but it, it's not there. But more importantly, we, we've got no indication that this was at a Roman approach to native religions. Across a Europe, what tended to happen is that local uh, religious sites, local religious traditions were adopted and merged with Roman beliefs. Um, and they were very, um, they worked with indigenous communities in that sense in really quite clever way. It's one of the reasons why the empire was so successful. We also need to remember that when Romans came to Britain, Stonehenge was already a ruin. There's no evidence at all that it was an active religious site. So in a sense, a Roman seeing Stonehenge might well have thought much the same that we might think today and look at it and think, what the hell is this? You know, no Roman soldier would have seen anything like Stonehenge any more than, than, than we do today. And you mentioned Druids just then, which leads me nicely on to a, a rather droll comment from the uh, popular medieval historian Mark Morris, who uh, asked on Twitter, the Druids, who were they and what were they doing? Uh, I, I suspect what he, he's, he's, he's being a bit telling to you there, but there is this link between Stonehenge and Druidry. Where does So you just alluded to it then. So where does it come from and, and is there anything at all to it? Druidry is quite a big big camp. Um, <laughs> the link with Stonehenge has got nothing to do with the Druids that were described by Caesar, whoever they were, the, the kind of religious elite of um, late prehistoric Britain. The Druids at Stonehenge were really conjured by William Stukeley in particular. Um, he wasn't the first, but he was the one who really made that association and embraced it in his personal life, um, as well as in his writings. And this was a kind of imaginary ancient people, drawing, of course, on the classical literature description of Druids, but substantially enlarged um, with notions of community and ceremonies and so on, and then attaching that to Stonehenge. At the time William Stukeley in the 18th century was writing, there was a kind of logic to that because they had no concept of a prehistory that reached back far beyond the Roman invasion. And if Roman writers wrote about native Britons, then it was perfectly logical to think that anything you might see in the landscape that we can't explain as being built by Romans or people who came later would have been built by the people that the Romans saw who were already there. And their religious elite were Druids, ergo Druids um, worshipped at Stonehenge. Archaeology breaks that up, but we're left with the Druids that Stukeley created in his own life and who became particularly active towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the last century. The history is a little bit 
cloudy on exactly when the first modern Druid ceremony took place at Stonehenge, but but it's certainly been happening a long time. And um, and they've been gathering at Stonehenge at midsummer um, to to witness the rising sun. And I first saw that when um, I just just after I'd left school and I was working on an excavation in Essex and uh, with a bunch of friends we drove down to Stonehenge uh, in my beaten up mini. And uh, we slept overnight nearby and we got out and we talked to Druids and we wandered around the stones and people were sitting there sort of making little bonfires and things. And it was all very friendly and chatty. And it's, <laughs> of course, things are different now, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, they are ineradicably associated with Stonehenge, but this is the modern Stonehenge. And my goodness, the modern Stonehenge is another pile of books. There's so much there going on. Before we get on to Modern Stonehenge, we will tackle very briefly. Joseph Keyes on Twitter wants to know, is it true that no one really noticed Stonehenge was there until the 70th, until the 17th century, uh, asking about whether it was robbed out and used for buildings nearby? Um, so d- did it become, did it fall into sort of ignominy for a period or was were people always talking about it? As long as we have recorded history, more or less... I think people were talking about it, and presumably they were before then. I mean, the first record we have to Stonehenge is in the 12th century AD, around about 1130. A bloke called, Hen- or we know as Henry of Huntington, wrote about Stonehenge and said, what an incredible thing it is. I can't imagine how anybody could build it or where it came from. And we've got some 14th, a couple of 14th century drawings of Stonehenge, one in Cambridge University Library and one in the British Library. And in, the, in France, there's a third drawing of Stonehenge done in about 1440. So we know people saw Stonehenge back in, in medieval times and recognised it and, as something that was inexplicable. And I, to be honest, I think it, it'd be quite reasonable to, to, to imagine that people always talked about Stonehenge since it was built. So it would start off by people remembering having taken place in its construction, presumably boasting about it <clears throat> to their grandchildren. Um, and then as things changed about uh, the new in reinventions and imaginations of the monument, uh, we've got in the Bronze Age, people are carving, uh, making surface carvings. They've got metal tools and stone to help them um, of little axe heads all over some of the stones. And in Anglo-Saxon times, we got, you know, we got all sorts of archaeological evidence that people were at the monument almost throughout prehistory and history up to the present day. I don't think it was ever forgotten. Yeah, I, those little axe heads are good, aren't they, in, carved into the, uh, into the stones, if you can actually get into the, uh, into, the, into the inner sanctum to have a look at them, which is hard these days. They're really difficult to see, even if, I mean, you, the best time, the best, I mean, I know this is not something that, that many of us can do, um, but the best way to see this access is to go on a very dark night uh, when it's dry with a torch and just play around with light. Um, and there are these shallow carvings, and there are dozens of them on some stones on the eastern side of the monument looking out across the plain. And quite weird things. And one of the things that's interesting is that we, sometimes find the actual axes, metal axes like this, in graves. And so one wonders if this association of the monument with burial is continuing into the Bronze Age, um, but is represented symbolically by these carvings. Okay, uh, just a few more. Uh, One from Richard Tracy. Who first called the monument Stonehenge? And and while while you're answering that, you might as well tell me why it's not actually a henge. 
The first mention of the name Stonehenge goes way back, and in fact, it's the very first mention of Stonehenge in any context at all. And that is in 1130, when Henry of Huntington called it, I don't know how he pronounced it, but it's spelt Stanenges. So it's Stanenges, there's no H in there. Now, what's interesting about that is that that essentially is Anglo-Saxon for stone hanging. And hanging is tradition, or has traditionally been interpreted as referring to the horizontal lintels up in the sky, you know, the, these great stones hanging in space. However, there's another possibility that this could refer to real hanging, i.e. execution. Some decades ago, I tracked down a skeleton, a human skeleton, that had been excavated at Stonehenge in the 1920s, that we thought had been destroyed in the Blitz. Unfortunately, it had survived, and when we examined it, we discovered it wasn't contemporary with Stonehenge. It wasn't Neolithic, as we had believed, but was in fact Anglo-Saxon. And, uh, and this poor man had actually been beheaded with a sword and buried very close to the monument, um, round about seven 800 AD. So there's a possibility that in Anglo-Saxon times, the site of Stonehenge became associated with execution, which could be beheading or hanging. And interestingly, the trilithons, the three really big stones where you've got a single lintel supported by two uprights, is similar to the appearance of an Anglo-Saxon gallows, which is not a single upright with a, a horizontal timber sticking out sideways, but is two uprights supporting a timber. And so it could be that when Henry of Huntington called Stonehenge Stanenges, he was actually using a phrase that had become attached to the monument from a description of it as stone gallows. That's fascinating. Uh, and what about um, this idea about it not being a henge? We start off with stone, Stonehenge. Stanenges became Stonehenge. The original word as we know it, Stanenges, became Stonehenge. And early in the last century, a British museum archaeologist writing about Neolithic monuments used the word Stonehenge to introduce what he described as a new class of monument that archaeologists had recognised, and he dropped the stone because none of these others had stones, <laughs> they were just earthworks, and called them henges. It's still a really useful word. Uh, it's suitably vague because we've no idea what it really means, and it, it, it's applied to late Neolithic, early Copper Age monuments where you have circular enclosures, usually earthworks, ditches and banks, typically with a ditch on the inside of the bank, um, which is a weird thing if you think about it, because normally earthworks like this are built the other way around because they're there to defend people on the inside, but not always on the outside. And interestingly, Stonehenge itself, the earthwork there has the ditch on the outside. So if you're being really nerdy, um, Stonehenge itself is not a henge. But henges also have arrangements of posts and sometimes stones. Um, and it's a really handy term for this sort of bunch of clearly partly religious monuments that are circular, that include posts and stones and earthworks that are built around, around this time in the late Neolithic. Kenny Brophy, who is uh, a prehistorian, I, I think himself, prehistoric archaeologist, asking a bit of a leading question. Do you think it is now time 
for a Stonehenge research moratorium that would allow time, money, intellectual effort and resources to be directed at neglected areas of British prehistory? That's um, an interesting question. I think the answer, my answer to that, of course, as a Stonehenge nerd, is, is no, I don't think there should be a moratorium on Stonehenge, but neither do I think that researching Stonehenge or researching the rest of the British Isles or anything at all are, are two alternatives. These are things that go together. Stonehenge is part of a, um, a religious, ritual, social landscape um, that spread across Europe. And I think the idea that somehow we can research that landscape and not put Stonehenge in it is just silly. Um, I understand where you're coming from because um, quite often on television and in the media, Stonehenge is portrayed as the centre of the universe as if nothing was happening anywhere else in Europe at the time. And of course, this is nonsense. And I would completely agree with you that that is a, a picture that we need to, to um, change. But there is a surprising amount, huge amount, that we don't know about Stonehenge that we could, with suitable research, learn about. And I really think um, continuing to do that is an important thing. Okay, and then one another question sort of follows from that, uh, I think, from Tim Dore, who wants to know, what is it about Stonehenge that suggests to people that some external help, whether Mycenaean, alien or glacial, was needed rather than acknowledge the skill and effort of the builders? That's a good question, because it is absolutely true that this has long been a feature of Stonehenge history and archaeology. Um, and not just Stonehenge, of course, but, you know, the same thing happens with Easter Island, with pyramids and so on. And it fundamentally, it's patronising and insulting, not just to ancient people, but I would argue also to, to modern people. The misapprehension goes back to a concept of ancient people as savage and primitive and wild. And when you have something like Stonehenge suddenly popping up in this wild landscape, you have to go somewhere else to explain its presence. And to be honest, whether it's it, it's alien or Mycenaean, it's much the same thing, because Mycenaeans are just as alien to the landscape of Wiltshire as somebody from Mars. And it's it reflects a gross misunderstanding of ancient societies and early humanity. The idea that people who built Stonehenge were not our equals needs to be squashed. The idea that people anywhere in the world at any time were not the equal of people who benefited from Western civilization needs to be squashed. The statues on Easter Island, the megaliths at Stonehenge, were supreme achievements of sophisticated societies. You could take away Stonehenge, you could take away the statues, but you're still left with sophisticated societies, with clever people doing creative things. People in the past were as clever as we are. They had different technologies, they had different beliefs, they had very different ways of living, different histories and so on. But they are people as every bit as sophisticated as us and deserve the same respect that we expect. That was Mike Pitts. His book, How to Build Stonehenge, is published now by Thames and Hudson. The British Museum exhibition, The World of Stonehenge, is also running now. And you can also find a feature by Mike on the building of Stonehenge in the March issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. (laughs) 
Join us on the History Extra website this week as we dig into the history and mystery of Stonehenge in our special Stonehenge-themed week. With a 30-day free trial to our digital subscription, you can access exciting Q&As featuring Stonehenge experts, quizzes, opinion articles and more. For a full week of history that you certainly won't want to miss, visit historyextra.com forward slash join. That's historyextra.com forward slash join for more information. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.